Today we're going to be looking at Romans 8, verses 18 through 27. This is the, the next paragraph we've come to. We want to look at this very important, <clears throat> very important question of how can the Christian maintain hope for eternal life in the face of suffering? Because last week we ended with verse 17, which may not be the most comforting verse for you. Verse 17 in Romans 8, which, which ends with this idea of suffering. What is the proof of our, that we are a child of God, that we are heirs of God, and that we are joint heirs with Christ is that we will suffer. That's not very comforting, is it? So we're going to look at this very important question. How can the Christian maintain hope? for eternal life in the face of suffering. I want to start off by asking you this question. How many of you heard of the term that I mentioned last week, the health and wealth gospel? Other than last week, okay? Uh, otherwise known as the prosperity gospel. And notice I put quotation marks around this. <laughs> uh, and the reason I put quotation marks around it is because it is not the gospel. In fact, you read... Uh, there's very serious warnings, by the way, in Galatians chapter 1. Anybody preaches a different gospel, even if an angel from heaven, Paul said in Galatians 1, preaches another gospel, let him be accursed, anathema. He's talking about eternal destruction and punishment. Sadly, there's many churches and pastors and televangelists preaching another gospel, which is the health and wealth or prosperity gospel, and if you're not familiar with this, this, this type of gospel basically states that once you believe in Jesus Christ, well, then everything is going to go well with you. This gospel states that if you're poor or sick, you must be weak in your faith. That's the reason you're sick. That's the reason you're poor. This gospel is preached many times over the airwaves, over over the TV, over many pulpits. But we have to ask the question, does the Bible teach the health and wealth and prosperity gospel? Is this how we are to live our lives? Is what we read in the books and hear on the radios and hear from pulpits the truth? The reality is, I'm sure many of you know, we live in a suffering world. We suffer. Every honest person on earth is going to testify that life is not easy. <laughs> it's not easy for me. It's probably not easy for you. Biblical Christianity does not minimize our difficulties and our sufferings. And in fact, we saw the promise last week, which states, all who live godly will suffer persecution. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation." So the Apostle Paul in our passage here tells us that we are at present suffering. That is the reality. And if, if that is not the reality for you, and you believe the health and wealth gospel, you need to pull your head out of the sand. And Paul emphasizes the fact of suffering by using the word groaning or groans here in our passage. And that's going to be essentially my three-point outline, Okay. Everywhere you see the word groan in our passage will be the three-point outline for today. But when you hear one groan, please don't think of a pleasant sound. When someone or something groans, the idea is it, it's not a pleasant sound. It is not a pleasing sound. 
It signals that a person is either hurt, exhausted, or suffering. And so in this passage, the whole creation, as we see here, including Christians, is groaning. Christians and creation are groaning. If you watch the news, read the newspapers, you're going to witness the groaning of creation. It's, it's all around us. Every single day, we can bear witness to that. The unprecedented rise of crimes, the decline of morality, uh, the, 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 the suffering children around the world, you often see the ads on the TV, continuous increase of prices of goods and services, <laughs> you, you feel the crunch? October 1st, as you know, yet again, life is just going to get harder. There'll be more suffering. We hear people, both old and young, dying of cancer. People dying of AIDS. Horrible in Africa, what's going on. Other diseases as well. And so if you look around you today, you're going to see a world that is in fear, and you're going to see a world in suffering. That's the reality. So... If that's reality, how do we address this issue of suffering? How do we address it? Well, there are, sadly, there's many voices out there in our world today who try to solve this issue of suffering, and they give their opinions quite freely sometimes. And some people, here, let me give you a couple of, of ways of, of options, if you will. I'll put them on the screen here for you. Here's some of the options of how some people try to solve the issue of suffering. Some people deny the existence of God. We call them atheists. But I'll remind you, according to Romans chapter 1, there is no such thing as an honest atheist. They don't exist. Well, that's one way of of dealing with the issue of suffering. Another way is to be a skeptic. Some people believe that there may be a God, but he doesn't care. He doesn't really care about you know, this issue that I have in my own life. He doesn't care about my disease or, you know, my financial situation or, you know, my kids or my husband. Or... So they're skeptics. And then there's some people who believe that God is good, but he's not sovereign. He doesn't reign supreme over his creation. If you're not familiar with this term, uh, there's a huge debate in the evangelical Christian world today over open theism. You heard that? Open theism. If you're not familiar with that, you need to be. Because sadly, some of our uh, sisters and brothers and some, some well-known theologians even believe in open theism. It's heresy. To state that God is good, but He is not sovereign is open theism, or part of it. Probably the most popular voice uh, several years ago, offered a solution to the problem of suffering. I guess you could say he was one of the first on the scene of, of open theism, was Harold Kushner. You heard of him? Harold Kushner, a Jewish rabbi. He penned his opinion in a best-selling book entitled, have you, Any of you ever read When Bad Things Happen to Good People? Good, I'm glad you did. Anyway, after the loss of his son uh, during his teenage years and after a decade of encounter with people who suffer loss and injustice, Rabbi Kushner concluded that, yes, there is a God, and He is good. He is all good, but He's not all-powerful. He does not reign supreme over His creation. 
And he wrote about that in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. So that was Rabbi Kushner's attempt to solve the so-called incongruity between what he saw going on in his life and in the world of suffering, but yet what the Bible talks about God being good. So he attempted to give comfort to his suffering readers, but sadly he failed miserably. For what he offers is obviously not hope, but it's disappointment. To state that God is not sovereign, to state that God does not reign supreme over all of his creation is not comforting to me. So for us Christians, the reliable guide to address this very important issue of suffering is obviously not the opinions of people, is not the philosophy of mankind, but it is the word of God, it is the Bible. And so the Bible tells us that suffering is real and it is inevitable. So our passage today tells us, at present, yes, we are suffering. But the good news is it doesn't need to end there. It doesn't need to end there. There is hope. God gives hope. And so today, if you are suffering, my friend, I have hope for you. (laughs) I have hope because God's word gives hope. Now the Bible perceives suffering in the context of, of something greater, which is God's glorious purpose. So the Apostle Paul tells us, yes, indeed, we, we are suffering for the moment. But it's only a moment. But after that is going to come glory, as we sang about just not that long ago. Paul tells us a great deal about this glory in this passage, and so we'll look at that. So let's look very, very closely now at, at this wonderful passage. We see three groans. In Romans 8, verses 18 through 27. Three groans. And these groans are all have a groan of purpose, if you will. And we'll address that. But the first thing that groans here in our passage is that creation groans. What is creation groaning for? Well, let's, let's read our passage. Romans 8, verse 18 to start with. What is creation groaning for? Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know, underline, you can underline that word know, we know with certainty that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs to de- together until now. So the first groan here is the cry from the created universe as it now exists in our corrupted a condition that was caused by the fall of mankind into sin. Creation groans because of the fall of mankind into sin. And it is groaning for something that is greater than now exists. Do you feel that groan? As our passage talks about? Well, what is this creation that God is talking about here? We need to be specific and identify this creation. Uh, let me just first of all, state what we're not talking about here. 
Let me state what the Holy Spirit is not talking about. Number one, this creation does not include the heavenly angels. There are two different kinds of angels. There's, there's the good angels and the bad angels. We typically think of the good angels, we just call them angels, and the bad ones we call demons. And we are not talking about heavenly angels because they are not subject to corruption. Just as God is not subject to corruption, neither are the heavenly angels. So it's not referring to the heavenly angels. And this creation does not include Satan and the demons either. They're not groaning. Because they have no desire for a godly, sinless state. Satan is quite happy with his state. The demons are quite happy with their corrupted state. So they're not groaning for a, a, a heavenly, perfect state. Believers are not included here. Because they're actually mentioned in the next verses. So it can't be believers. This creation does not refer to unbelievers or non-Christians. So what are we left with then? What is this creation that is groaning? And by the way, it's still groaning. Today, it's still groaning. The only remaining part of creation then is the non-rational part of God's creation. In other words, the grass and the trees and the mountains and the rivers and the oceans, okay? The planets and the stars. That's the non-rational part of creation. That is what God is referring to here by his creation that is groaning. Well, then the next logical question might be, why is creation groaning? Why does creation groan? Well, because the first human beings, who were obviously Adam and Eve, if you read your Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you find Adam and Eve were the first created beings that God made about 6,000 years ago. Well, they were created sinless, they were created perfect, they were created in God's image, but they sinned, and they fell from God's grace. So God's creation, as a result of that, was cursed. God's creation was corrupted as a result of sin. Yes, even the non-rational part of God's creation was corrupted. You say, prove it. I'm glad you asked. Well, look what God said in Genesis chapter 3. I'll put it on the screen here for you. Here's what God said to Adam after the fall of mankind into sin. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says, And to Adam he, that is God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. I'm not going to make any jokes, but I'm sure you guys could think of some there. Anyway, uh, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. That's what God said. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's why. That's why the rivers and the trees and the mountains and the stars groan. Because Adam and Eve sinned, and we are born in sin. So before the fall, then, guess what? There was no weeds in your garden. There was no thistles. There were no poisonous plants. By the way, that was interesting. This week I looked up on the Internet because I thought, no poisonous plants on this earth. How many do we have today? Just do a Google search. 
poisonous plants. I mean, there are some plants out there that will kill you. <laughs> in fact, we have one in New Zealand that is, is quite, can be quite deadly, the privet. Heard of that one? Don't eat that one. Wouldn't recommend it. And don't cut it down and throw it over into the, po- the farmer's paddock either. I had a friend of mine who did that, having no idea what he was cutting down, threw the privet over into the, the cow's paddock. The cows ate the privet, and the cows died. So don't do that, all right? There's some poisonous plants out there. There's a lot of things that can hurt us. But in the beginning, there were no thorns, thistles, anything else that could cause people misery or harm. It was a perfect world. But after the fall of mankind into sin, well, creation, the Bible says here in Romans 8, was subjected to futility. Do you see that word, in, at least in the new KJV? That's what it says. What does that mean? The, the creation was subjected to futility. Let me give you a definition. The word futility carries the idea of being without success or being unable to achieve a purpose. So because, in other words, because of mankind's sin, no part of nature that, uh, that now exists as God intended it to be and as it, as it originally was is accomplishing God's purposes. Well, what is the purpose? What is the purpose? Well, what does Psalm 19, verse 1 say? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Why did God make all things? I hope you know that catechism. God makes all things for His glory. Well, if it's futility, who subjected creation to futility? Look at verse 20. You'll see in verse 20 the words was subjected. That helps to answer the question of who or what subjected creation to futility. Was subjected indicates that nature didn't curse itself, but instead there was some outside force, if you will, let me put quotation marks around force, that cursed creation. So the answer is found there in verse 20. In other words, God himself put the curse on his creation, was subjected as, as passive. So it was the creator himself. And by the way, the creator, as creator, has the right to do with his creation as he pleases. So lest we go around saying, well, that's not fair, who are we to judge what is fair? He made it. He could do as he wishes. Well, such is the destructiveness of sin as we see here that one man's disobedience brought the corruption of the entire universe into being. So all the, all the bad things you see around you are a result of sin. Okay? Decay, disease, pain, death, the natural disasters, the pollution, and any other form of evil that you can think of is a result of sin. Creation is groaning under sin, under the fall of sin. They're groaning for a a day. Creation groans for the day when it will be released from the bondage of sin. When is that going to happen? Is it going to happen? Well, i got good news for you. One day it will happen, but the question is, when will that happen? When... And the answer to that question is when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. 
Well, when is God going to create a new heaven and a new earth? Let me give you some verses to think about here, okay? 2 Peter 3.13 says this, But according to his promise, we, that's believers, are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Are you? Are you really waiting for that day? Well, look at Revelation 21, verse 1, which says this. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. My friends, there's coming a day when this planet we live on is going to be destroyed. God's going to destroy it because it must be destroyed because now it is cursed by sin. And he's going to start over and make things perfect again. Don't worry, you're not going to be on the planet when that happens. Okay, don't freak out. <laughs> There's a naturalist by the name of John Murr. Made a very interesting statement. You, you tell me if you think this is true, because he wrote in a, in a book, he says that nature is unfallen and undepraved, and that only man is a blight on the landscape. Is that true? Nature, he says, nature is unfallen and undepraved, and that only man is a blight on the landscape. That is a serious error, as we can see from our passage here. The environmentalists, by the way, they're going to try to preach their gospel. They're going to try to teach us that we should live in harmony with nature. And even some of them are going to try to push the government to try to take us back to the Dark Ages. As if living in the dark ages is living in harmony with nature. Are we so historically inaccurate and so historically ignorant that, that we don't understand what the dark ages were like? Read, your hist- read good history books. The dark ages was not a glorious, wonderful time period where we were one with nature. <laughs> oh no, far from it. The reality is, in the Dark Ages, those people had less comfort, had more pain, harder times, more disease, and they died younger. Is that living in harmony with nature? No. So, my friends, this is not a friendly earth that we live on. We live on a very violent and dangerous earth. Just talk to the people in Christchurch. You never know what can happen. Talk to the people in Places like Indonesia or wherever, Thailand or wherever, you know, tsunamis can hit you without a warning. And so it's a ridiculous fantasy to think that this earth is not cursed and that it's somehow just going to naturally yield a comfortable life for you. That is not reality. However, in spite of this curse, uh, obviously can go on a walk, you go on a tramp, you can look at pictures on the internet or in books, and you can see the beauty and the grandeur and the benefits of this natural world. It's, some of it still remains. It's a beautiful world, despite the fact that it is groaning. Well, the environmentalists are not going to like the next statement I'm going to make, as if they didn't like the first one. Here's another one for you to think about. Nature's destiny is inseparably linked to mankind's destiny. Ooh, environmentalists don't like that. And it's true. Nature's destiny is inseparably linked to mankind's destiny. 
And so because mankind sinned, guess what happened? The rest of creation was corrupted as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. So they're linked inseparably. Well, likewise, when mankind's glory is restored and mankind is, is brought to, to a place of glory again and, and a place of perfection, guess what's going to happen to the natural world? It also will be brought to a place of glory. Well, you've probably heard the doomsayers today talking of a worldwide holocaust. Heard that? Oh, you know, we need to fear this worldwide holocaust. And there were people, and some people I even know, during the Cold War. Cold War, I, I couldn't tell you the dates exactly, particularly the 50s and the 60s. Uh, there were people I know who, who, had, who had dug bunkers in their backyard, concrete bunkers, and had a couple years' worth of food and, and, and water supply in their bunkers lest Russia attack the United States with nuclear missiles. <laughs> so do we need to fear a worldwide holocaust? I mean, after all, the natural bent of the universe is obviously downward, and it's not upward. Everything is clearly running down, and it's getting worse. Yet, despite our continually degeneration, neither mankind nor the universe itself will bring about their ultimate destruction. Oh, don't listen to the global warming, you know, fanatics. Don't listen to the global warming propaganda. Please don't fall for that. It's not true plenty of doomsayers out there who love to feed you their propaganda. They have an agenda. The earth is not going to be destroyed by global, so-called global warming. It's going to be destroyed in a different way, and God mentions it in Scripture. God is in control. He's not going to allow His earth to be destroyed by carbon gases. Therefore, there is obviously no need for us to fear a world, worldwide human holocaust. It's not going to happen. And in fact, look what 2 Peter 3.10 says. Here's how God is going to destroy the earth. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I don't know for sure, but... I, I suspect that this earth that we live on is going to go up in one huge atomic explosion. As you can see there, the heavens are going to pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies are going to be burned up and dissolved. Do you realize that every single atom that makes up every single thing on this planet, including the chairs you're sitting in, and your body is made of atoms? Do you realize within the atoms in your body and everything else are electrons, neutrons, and protons that should not stay together. Study science. This was interesting. When I studied this in high school, I remember my science teacher in chemistry showing us how the atoms should fly apart. It shouldn't stay together. So how does it stay together? Read Colossians. Read Colossians. Read Hebrews. The one who sustains the universe is Jesus Christ. He holds it together, the Bible says. And so when the creator of the universe takes his hold off his creation, the atoms will fly apart and everything will cease to exist. And then he'll bring it all together again and make it new. So 
So as you can see, the destruction is going to be on a scale infinitely more powerful than any man-made devices could possibly achieve. Carbon gases in the universe, in the, or in the atmosphere, could not possibly do that. So why does creation groan? Creation groans because it's hoping and it's expecting a time of restoration as this passage in Revelation is talking about here. Let me show this to you. Revelation 21. We'll just read verse 1 and then we'll skip to verse 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He, that's God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you believe these trustworthy and true words? He will. One day, he's going to make all things new. And how will creation be set free from the bondage it's in at the moment? How? Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's going to be delivered. It will. Notice it says, will be delivered, or some translations say, will be set free. It will be one day. And by the way, these words are passive. Not only is it future tense, but it is also passive, which is indicating that the nature is not going to restore itself, but that nature will be restored by someone else. Obviously, that someone else is God, the one who subjected creation to futility is also going to glorify it again one day. When will the earth be made new? When? Well, I wish I could tell you the date. (laughs) And if I did, I'd be a fool if I tried to give you a date. Many have tried and proven themselves to be fools. I don't know when God's going to make the earth new. I'm not even going to attempt to try. But what the Bible does tell us is that he has kept that date secret. It will come like a thief in the night. But what the Bible does tell us is it's going to take place after the 1,000-year reign of Christ, which we call the millennium. Read your Bible. Chapter 20 talks about the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Revelation 20, 1,000 years, Christ will reign on this earth, and when he is done, he's going to dissolve it all, he's going to destroy it all, and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. That's Revelation chapter 21. It's going to happen in chronological order. So we see the first thing that groans is what? Creation. The second thing that groans here in our passage is Christians groan for glory. Christians groan for glory. Look at verse 23. And by the way, you're saying, well, how do you know this is Christians? Because if you look in verse 23, you see the word we. We. Paul's writing to Rome, right? The church in Rome. Who makes up a church? Christians. Look at verse 23. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. 
But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Oh, my friends, if you're a Christian, you have to persevere. It's a biblical truth. So we, as Christians, it's talking about Christians here, we are groaning for this glory that is yet to be revealed. Why do Christians groan? I mean, some people just say, you know, don't worry, be happy. So should Christians just be happy and have this perpetual grin on their face? Well, every time we see God working in our lives, we, we ought to yearn, we ought to long for more. We ought to long to be freed from this body of corruption, this body of death, this indwelling sin that still remains in us. If you're a Christian, that's why you should be groaning. We groan over the dreadful curse of sin that's still manifesting itself in our humanness. We see the psalmist talking about this groaning in Psalm chapter 38. Here's what uh, David said when he acknowledged his own humanness, his own indwelling sin. Look at this, Psalm 38. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. Do you see the psalmist David groaning over his indwelling sin? You say, well, am I supposed to be that way? Yes. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you should be groaning because there is something that is far better. Well, the Apostle Paul grieved also over the remnants of his humanness. We talked about that in Romans 7. Remember, Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is found in the next verse. It's Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians, Paul reminded us of our dilemma. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4 says this, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further closed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You live in a tent, as as it's described here. And as long as we are in this tent of our human bodies, we will never fully escape sin's corruption in our lives. Indwelling sin goes with us everywhere we go. And so if you're a Christian, that truth is going to cause you to suffer times of distress over the debilitating sinfulness, over the indwelling sin that still clings to you like some filthy garment that you can't seem to get rid of. So let me give you a question. Some people will say, well, these verses seem to make it sound like it's possible to lose your salvation. Is that possible to lose your salvation? There's some verses in the Bible that might sound that way, And by the way, the answer to that question is, is it possible to lose your salvation? Is this talking about losing your salvation? The answer is, no true believer should ever fear losing their salvation. Because a true believer cannot lose their salvation. The Bible says, read John 6, read John chapter 10, 
when you're in God's hands, you can't escape. That's a comforting truth. Once you're there, you're there permanently. Nothing will ever take you from God's hand. So it is only the body that is yet to be redeemed here. So you say, well, if it's not referring to the loss of my salvation, what is this redeemed body here? It is that humanness, if you will. That is what's going to be redeemed. The inner person, if you're a Christian, is already a completely new creation. Really? Where's that in the Bible? Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17, here again on the screen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So, as you can see there, our souls are already fully redeemed. Our souls have already been bought from the slave market of sin, and God makes them fit for heaven. God does that. But then we're still left with our flesh. We're still left with the skin and the, the muscles and our, and our indwelling sin. That's still corrupt. That is what is waiting the day of redemption. Philippians 3, what wonderful passage here. Look at this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what is your body going to be like? You want to know? What is your heavenly body going to be like? It will be like Jesus' body. That's the simple answer. Well, point number three, quickly. Not only does creation groan for glory, not only are Christians groaning for glory, but number three, the third groan is, the Holy Spirit is groaning for glory. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You say... Man, finally, thank you for some good news. I mean, it's, it's been a bit depressing so far. That, I mean, creation is groaning for glory. Christians are groaning for glory, but praise God, the Holy Spirit is also groaning for glory. And so here Paul reveals this comforting truth that the Holy Spirit, he, he actually comes alongside Christians. He is groaning for God's ultimate day of restoration he is groaning for God's eternal reign of righteousness. It's not here yet, but it's coming. Do you ever feel the struggle of these verses? Do you ever feel the struggle that you, you know, I, I, I don't even know how to pray. I do. Sometimes I'm like, I, I don't want to pray. I don't feel like praying. I, I don't know what to say. Uh, is God going to hear me? I don't know how to pray as I should. It's a frustrating feeling. But the good news is, even when we do not know what God wants, even though you feel like you don't know the heart of God on some matter, the indwelling Spirit of God intercedes for you. You can't get a better prayer partner than that. The third person of the Trinity is your prayer partner. 
In other words, what I'm saying is this, that he brings our needs before God even when we don't even know what we should pray for, we don't even know what, uh, what the prayer request should be or what we should pray about or even how to pray wisely about a matter. The Holy Spirit prays and intercedes for you. Do you see the hope in these verses? There's great hope in these verses. We remain justified and we remain before God the Father only because of these two matters. Because God the Holy Spirit intercedes for you and because God the Son represents us before the Father. In other words, these two companions, if you will, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are our constant advocates and our intercessors. Without their work, I mean, we would, we'd never be able to enter heaven and we would have no hope and we wouldn't know how to pray We couldn't pray, and we would not have the righteousness needed to enter heaven. In fact, listen to what Hebrews 7 says here. He, that is Christ, it's on the screen, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Praise God. You have God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Without them advocating and interceding for you, you have no hope. So my friends, a glory awaits us. Yes, creation is groaning for that glory. Yes, Christians, we can groan now for that glory. But praise God, the Holy Spirit is groaning. He's interceding for you, and Jesus Christ is your high priest. He's also interceding for you. And one day he's going to return. He's going to set all things right. He's going to make all things new. And so our glory awaits us that exceeds the wildest imaginations that you could possibly think of. It exceeds the wildest imaginations of the greatest fictional writers out there today. They can't trump what God is going to do in glory. So you and I are going to be creatures that are so glorious that if you were to see those creatures today, you would want to bow down and worship them. That's how good it's going to be. It is going to be glorious. And because of the greatness of the coming glory and because of our weakness, we groan. That's why we groan. That's why creation groans. But we're not alone. We're surrounded by a sympathetic groaning of creation. You as a Christian, you are surrounded by other Christians who are groaning with you for the day of redemption. And even the Holy Spirit, the greatest prayer partner you will ever have, is groaning on your behalf in creation's behalf. So one day our groaning is going to be replaced by glory. Let me sing about this and I'll end with this. There's a song in our hymn book. I I like this song. The title of the song is Oh, That Will Be Glory. Oh, That Will Be Glory. Here's I put the words up here for you. When all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages be glory for me.
Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. Let's pray.